Hello, Maxine Simata Kavithit Kamraig, Ryan and Rob. Hi, Maxine here, Ryan and Rob's Welsh translator. The Hing Grando are Podlidiad Newith, Fearless in Devotion. You're listening to Fearless in Devotion, a new podcast all about Wrexham AFC. Here they come, our mighty champions. Raise your voices to the anthem. Marching like a mighty army, Wrexham is the name. Hello, Croix on all to Fearless in Devotion, the podcast all about Wrexham AFC, sponsored by the Fat Boar restaurant and bar. Uh, today, we've got a belter of a guest lined up for you, former Wrexham left-back Neil Ashton, and he had uh, plenty to say, didn't he, lads? Yeah, just a bit. Um, similar to, to Rutherford, maybe there's a theme with the chatty schools. Great servant to us, and very, 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 very upfront. Really, really good stuff. Awesome. Yeah, we had a really uh, wide-ranging chat with Neil, who also answered Andy's quickfire questions and gave us his most fearless in devotion moment playing for Wrexham 2. Later on, we'll be continuing our worst ever Wrexham 11. But first, we have a new sign-in. Uh, Andy looks like a pretty decent acquisition, Aaron Hayden. Yeah, again, um, it's another lad I'm not really familiar with. But, you know, it, I don't have to be familiar with him. Les Reed and uh, and the manager have to be familiar with them, um, and he seems good. He, you know, he played solidly last season. Carlisle fans really rate him. Um, looks like he's quite good in both boxes, especially they say he's quite good at attacking uh, attacking corners. So he could even weigh in with a couple of goals. So I don't know. I mean, if they are going to play three at the back, I wonder do we still need another centre back, or is or is that business done now? Could be done at the back, but there still is a massive gaping hole in midfield, isn't there? Still, Liam, that's got to be the priority, I'd imagine, the next the next week or so. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we've had Furman and um, Dave Jones on trial for a bit. I don't know what the situation is there because it doesn't seem to be much progress. I suppose that's hard when you know Parkinson's isolating his knee, but um, I've got a good feeling about a midfield signing just from the fact that. They've gone for one really, really top draw, you know, forward signing. Same in defence now. And I could easily see them trying to do similar in midfield as well. It's just, I like the way they've gone about it. You know, there's some solid signings in there. Maybe some that not everyone would rave about, but certainly decent enough. And then alongside it, there just seems to be some real quality coming in now. Yeah, I think if we could have a a big uh, marquee midfield signing from... Uh, and another League Two player we could steal, then I think that then we could all get very, very, very excited. But without much further ado, let's play the interview we conducted with Neil Ashton. Uh, just a warning to you all, we do usually try and bleep out some of the swearing, but that would be too much editing this week, to be frank. Neil speaks with such passion and uh, conviction about his time at Wrexham. The odd swear word does come out. So if you are listening to this out loud in a church or something, then maybe just turn it down a bit. You have been warned, but it's really well worth a listen. Um, here is the interview with Neil. On this week, we've got a player who served the club with distinction five years, 204 appearances, unless he tells me otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, Neil John Ashton. Nice to have you. <laughs> Full title as well. Thanks very much. Thanks for having yeah. 
I think it's that that started a while back when we were. I think it was probably Andy's fault when he did Paul Leslie Rutherford the other week. Which I mean, Leslie's better than John, isn't it? Come on, Leslie's something that you can. Yeah, it's a bit out there, like isn't it? (laughs) When I heard that, I was I was giving myself a little bit of a chuckle when I had to listen to it. We didn't ask him if he was bullied at school, but we can. (laughs) Um, So yeah, let's let's go right back. I'm not going to go overboard with with going into the early stuff. Obviously, you started your career at Tranmere, and then. Lengthy spells at Shrewsbury and Chester, either side of a loan move to Macclesfield Town, I think, off the top yeah, of my head. Yeah. Um, so I think, obviously, Chester is where we picked you up from by virtue of their ultimate demise. Um, yeah. Just take us through how that came about, because obviously it must have been a, a messy situation down at our, our, our lovely friends down the road. Um, what, was, what was the uncertainty like? Where did it leave you? Um what was the general atmosphere between you and the rest of the players? You know, you, I, I don't think when, you know, you'll, people may have spoken to you about it, but being there and living it was the hardest nine, probably nine months of, of my life. And when, when I say, you know, borderline depression, not getting paid from the day I left or, the, you know, the month after I left Shrewsbury, so I got paid in the August off Shrewsbury, and then season started, come to the first time you're supposed to get paid, no one, nothing. So it goes and sees the chief executive and he says, hold on a minute, just wait there. And comes back with a, a, a brown envelope with my wages in. Right. Says, don't stick them in your car and don't tell nobody else that you've got it. I'm going, you're kidding me. And he goes, no, that's what I've been told to do, do and do as you're told. So, you know, I have. I've stuck the, the wages in my car and I've gone out and played. And then that was it. That was the last money I ever received from, from Chester. Start, I was playing. We weren't getting paid. And then eventually I got injured. I was, uh, I think it was around November time, uh, needed an operation, fighting Chester to get it done. I was never, you know, that was just a thankless task. Mm. So I contacted the PFA and fortunately enough, you know, still being it with the PFA, they paid for my operation and my rehab and stuff like that. And and then what happened on the when the club actually folded, I'd done an interview with BBC that was live on BBC about, you know, most of the players were scared to do it, you know, for one reason or another. And, you know, I'd passed Kane at that point. I, I was, you know, I was physically struggling with injuries and I was mentally unwell. I, you know, I was I was borderline depressed and stuff like that. And so I went on BBC and it was probably the luckiest minute or so of my life. I, whenever I went on it, whatever day it was, and then a couple of days later, Andy Mangan rings me out of the blue. I'd spoke to him for a couple of years. We, me and Mangs played as 10-year-olds together in a local Sunday league team. And, just out the blue, he says, "Listen, I've spoken to um, to Dean Saunders, and um, he's, he, you know, I've told him what type of player you are and stuff like that." And he said, "You can come in and get fit." I've gone, "Really? Yeah, yeah." He said, "Listen, get your get your operation done when you're ready to come in. Come get yourself fit. Brilliant." Goes away, gets the op done and stuff like that. Uh, goes to Lilla Show and goes in and sees Mangy. Mangy takes me in, meets uh, Ritz, the physio, Mal Lloyd. Uh, sorry, Mal Pertis, the um, fitness man, and uh, that was it. Just went from there. You know, I was with them every day doing whatever Mal and Ritz asked of me. 
double sessions, wasn't getting paid. In, no, in fairness to the club, I say I wasn't getting paid. They were giving me expenses to come in and, and train. And from from that day on, someone in League Two could have offered me a thousand pound a week, and I'd have never gone. You know the loyalty and just the the effort that they put into me for I think it was about three or four months, paying me for coming in just to get fit, and they were giving me money. You know they didn't have to do that. I think they seen something in me from day one that you know how hard I was willing to work and you know give it a go. And from that day on, you know Mangi, who's you know I've I've kept in touch with, I owe so much to Saunders. I owe a hell of a lot too, but most importantly, I think the two guys who helped me get back to the player that I was and, you know, that Wrexham scene of me was Mal and Ritz. They invested a lot of, hell of a lot of time in me when, you know, they didn't have to. I wasn't a contracted player to them. You know, I was nothing to them, but they still invested a hell of a lot of time in me to get me back playing. And, you know, I think I owe a a hell of a lot to them as well for, for spending that time on me. Did that? Did they help you mentally as well? Because I know you mentioned about a depression aspect then, and it's easy for us to see from the outside looking in. We see a, a sort of fitness guru or a physio, and the injured players go to them, and then they're worked on, and then they're brought back gradually. There's obviously a lot more to it than that. So, how how deep does, does that run with that rehab? Because pr- presumably they, they they must get you in a decent headspace to to get ready to prepare for first team football again. Yeah, yeah. And I, see, I think obviously the mental side of thing, you know, I, I, at that time I wouldn't have said they were, it, was, it wasn't, you know, a, a thing to talk about. It was a taboo subject. You know, I think that was it's probably 10 years ago. So they, you know, I, I wouldn't have said they were experts on mental health and stuff like that. But I think the time and effort that they spent on me changed my mental, my, my mental state and the mental side of my life. And I was coming on with a smile on my face, although, you know, I was in absolute agony after some of the sessions being with Mal and, and Ritz, but I was I was smiling. And they got that love back for football, which was, that meant more than anything to me. At that time in my life, that was the most important thing, to get that love back, the smile on my face, enjoying, you know, going to work, or, you know, people say work, going to play or be around a football club every single day was that totally changed my mindset of I was struggling. I really was. And within two months I was back, you know, I was, I was back running. I was, I was running hard and enjoying being in and around the football club. And I I loved it. And, you know, for, for probably they're not mental health experts, but it, whatever they done helped me, um, you know, subconsciously they mightn't have known what they were saying or doing to get me in that point, but it, it did. And you know, as I say, I'm, I'm forever thankful for for what they they done for me over that time. And also Gaz Taylor as well, who was injured at the time, and he was also pushing me along, and you know, saying, "Come on, we can do it." And we were doing it together. And he was 36 at the time, maybe something like that, and he was dragging me along when I wasn't as fit as. Him at that time, after being out for so long, and we worked together to, to, you know, to get back fit, and that was just such an important part of my future in football. So it clearly must have worked the rehab because that first season you were with us, forty-two appearances, including the the playoff defeats to Luton. Before we get to that, tell us a bit about Dean Saunders. 
what's he like as as a person, as a manager, because you hear various stories about him. We we we, we know the stories that have hit the press in the last twelve months, blah blah blah. But as as a as a manager and a person, what what's he like? He's a million mile an hour. Yeah, and but everything is done that he wants the best out of. So whatever he does is to to do the best for whoever he's doing it for, whether it be himself, the football club, an individual player. He wants the best for everyone. And he was fantastic, he was. And, you know, some of the stories that, you know, you're sitting on a table having a cup of tea, he doesn't shut up for 40 minutes telling you stories. And the great stories, you know, from when he was playing at Liverpool and stuff like that, he used to tell his wife with a, a golf club, you know, one bang was turning the, the TV up and two bangs would change the channel down. That's that's that was his mentality of I've got a game tomorrow, so I'm not moving off this. If I, she's changing the channel for me and stuff like that, and it was incredible, honestly, to listen to him to what he must have put his wife through over the years was just oh, honestly they're just some of the things that he, he was just incredible. But he was such a you know a, a coach who worked on the detail and. I think that the first year I was there, you know, obviously we got to the playoffs, but a lot of the second year was, I think, down to the structure that we had in that first year. Mm. And then we kicked on from that and built on that on the second year. And obviously he left in, was it September time or something like that mm. in the second year? Um, but a lot of it was from them. But he used to, I, I after about two or three months, you know, I was playing quite well and, in the in the team meetings on it like Monday morning, he'd absolutely leather me, and I thought, I don't know, lights on Saturday, you know, what's going on here? And he absolutely batter me. I'm thinking, oh, this isn't like this. So after about three or four months, I finally plucked up the courage to go and see him. And I was gaffy, you know, well, how come you keep having a go at me? I said, you know, I think I'm playing well. He goes, yeah, you are. He said, but there's some people in the room who I'm having a go at you, but I'm trying to have a go with them, but they can't take it. So I'm having a go at you to have a go at them. And I'm like, oh, freaking, why didn't you tell me two months ago? I'm having a midlife crisis here thinking you don't like me and stuff like that and <laughs> trying to do anything I possibly can to get on your good side. And he said, Some people will just go under when I start shouting at them, they go under. So I have to do it, go around the houses to, to have a go at them and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, so you're picking on me? And he went, yeah, basically I'm picking on you. So I thought, okay, I, you know, I can handle that then. <laughs> I was just like, I couldn't believe what he was saying to me some of the time. And, but he was having a go with other players, but through me. But I think that was just being at that top level and realising that you can't speak to everyone in the same way. You have to sort of pick your targets and, you know, put your arm around some, you can have a go with others. And I think he'd done that really well. And, you know, as I say, he was a fantastic coach and he was, you know, his his desire for football in as a whole, I don't think will be, I, I don't think I've ever met a person who's got more desire and affection and love for football. Are you surprised he fell out of the game in, in the way he has done? Yeah, I think obviously things didn't go well at Wolves, did they? And then he, he went to, uh, did he go to Doncaster from Wolves? Yeah. And that didn't go very well either. So I think it, it's, it's sort of like that next strike for him, maybe that, you know, he'll, he'll be never able to come back from it. But I'm, I was surprised he didn't get into management in, in some sort. You know, I, I know I see he was doing a bit of media and stuff like that, whether 
that's the way he wants to go down. You know, you see a lot of people going down that way. He's got, a, listen, he's, he's got so much knowledge about football and stuff like that that I don't think he would, he wouldn't be bad being on the TV. But, you know, I don't know what, you know, I haven't spoke to him for a hell of a long time. So I don't really know what's going on in his personal life, why he hasn't decided to get back into football. But, you know, only he will know and, and the, the people who are close around him. I think Andy looks like he's got a burning question. I can see him plotting away. Have you got anything? No, I was just going to just going to ask what, what it was like if, during a match because I can remember once I was it was Altrincham away and I was on the I was uh, standing behind the, the dugout and he was absolutely bollocking Silvio's fan for forty five minutes, it's like just directing, stand there, Silvio, go there, Silvio. I wonder if you ever got that. Like you're there, oh bloody hell! I'm I'm on the I'm on the bench side this half. I'm going to have 45 minutes of Saunders in my ear. Or did he leave you to it because he knew you you know you you would carry on with your job and concentrated on maybe Sis? Yeah, I think that that's what well, I think the attacking players he had more like influence over. You know, we had Big Bry as well, so Bry had worked a lot with the defenders, and you know. Dean would work more so with the attackers and you'd probably hear him berating the attackers more so than anybody else or the wingers. And, you know, unless we made a mistake or something glaringly bad we'd done, he, he would sort of leave us alone in the game, but he would still scream your name, you know, even if it was just to wake you up. If you needed, you know, a bit of a jolt, he would always have a, you know, scream your name to say, to do something. But, Generally, on the whole, he left me. He probably waited till the meetings on the Monday morning to have a go at me and wake me up then and, and everyone else. But no, he was he, as I, he was really good, and you know you could hear him from a million miles away when, when he was having a go with people and stuff like that. But it was always for the best of of the player and the team, and and that's what you know. I think a lot of players, although some didn't get on with him because of the way he spoken to them, I think if you ask how he was as a coach, they would they would always say, yeah, he was excellent. So when 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 Dean moves on, and I don't think anyone can really blame him for 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 taking that job at, at, at that time, Andy Morell, when we spoke to him a couple of weeks ago, said he was surprised that he was the person picked to to, to take the team on. Were you surprised, or could could you see that one coming? Well, Mozo was the oldest player in the squad, I think, and I think after that first, he's you know for the, the remainder of while he was there, he was it was a fantastic player. And I think it was only because he was the oldest player of the squad. And I think what happened was that we went on a bit of a, a really good run of form. And he was, I think he didn't play the first couple of games when he, when he got the job. So we were still doing fairly well and, and picking up results. And then he brought Billy Barr in. And I think, oh, no, he must have been offered the job permanently by that time. I'm not sure. Or whether he brought Billy in on a part-time basis. I can't really remember but they seemed to work really well together. And because Mozo was a player coach or player manager, he was the good guy. Billy was the bad guy. And, it, you know, you always have that good cop, bad cop relationship in any sort of management type thing. And it just worked, you know. And for, for him to get the results that we did, I think it was just, why not give him a go? He's a bit, he's a Wrexham legend. Let's just see where it takes us. I think it was only for the remainder of the season initially where he, he was given the job. But, you know, you've seen how we performed under under Mozart. And I think what also the same with, with Dino, the, the players had so much respect for Mozart. Regardless of if you were playing or you weren't, 
he was a nice man. You know, take away the football side of things. You could go and have a chat with him over any aspect of your life and he would always give you his, his honest opinion and stuff like that. And he, he was just a, a genuine guy who, you'd, you know, you'd want to go and have a pint with or you'd want to go and have a bite to eat with. He was just, he was a nice fella. So I think that's what helped him as well in the role of being a manager where he had Billy as his, the nasty one and he had Mozart as the good guy. And, you know, they, they dovetailed together really, really well. And I think that's why he was given the job on a permanent basis. How did you find Billy Barr? Because we had Lee Fowler on and he, he didn't like him at all. I loved him. I really did. And I think he brought my game onto another level as well. You know, he he was a, a fullback from centre-half as a player and he must have seen something in me that he thought, well, I can work with him to, to you know, bring my game on. And we used to do a lot of video sessions when people had gone home, Billy would give me um, like clips of games to go and watch of Premier League footballers. That was very similar to how you know part of my game happened on the Saturday. And I would go and evaluate what I'd done, what they were doing. And then come three, four, five weeks' time, I was making the right decisions of what, you know, I'd seen the bad decisions while I was making a few weeks earlier. And then in those few weeks of watching it back and seeing what the Premier League players do, you know, international players, I was able to tailor my game around that to learn of what I was doing wrong. So me as an individual, I thought he was superb as a coach. Really, really enjoyed my time working under him. Yeah, Files probably didn't like him. A lot. I, don't, I would imagine some players didn't like him because of he was straight. You know, he told you straight. Yeah. Listen, Lee Fowler will divide opinion on every single football pundit out there. Lee Fowler was a fantastic footballer, but his attitude let him down in football. Hmm. And that's that's as simple as that. Lee Fowler, I, I don't think I've played with a player who had more natural ability than Lee Fowler and Kevin Thornton at Wrexham. And that's probably in my whole career. Natural ability on the of the pair of them. But they both fall into the same category of their attitude. And I'm, you know, I've seen them both. And I would say I'm a, I'm a good judge of character and stuff like that. And their attitude towards football wasn't what their talent deserved, in my opinion. Were they divisive in the changing room or did they become divisive? Uh, no, I wouldn't say divisive, no. The, the, Lee, was, Lee was a natural footballer and wanted to play and wanted to do things his way. If he, It was like if things didn't happen the way he wanted it, like I'm, I'm leaving or you know, I'm handing a transfer request in. Lee, Lee Fowler must have had 20 football clubs in his professional career. So that goes to show uh, there's something not right there, you know, in, in his attitude or whatever it may be. Mm. But as I say, talent, ability can't be questioned. But why do you have so many football clubs in such a short career? And and that's, you know, very similar to Kev Thorne, who, like I say, two outstanding footballers, but have had 40 clubs between them in a what, 25-year period of playing football? Mm. There's, there's obviously something not quite right there. Can I ask you as well, before you mentioned Gaz Taylor, and we, we've kind of gone past it, so I want to bring it up before 
um, we go even further past. Obviously, you scored a penalty in a in a playoff semi final eventually uh, against Kiddy at home. Uh, that one at Luton away, should you have taken that one? Should be no, I don't think so. No, um, I've never taken a penalty in a, in such a high profile game before, so yeah. I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been comfortable stepping up at that time. No, I thought Mangy should have taken it. Because Ma- I think Mangy had taken penalties in the season um, and scored some penalties, so I think it should have been. But I think Gaz went, you know, with the experience of himself being, you know, thirty six, thirty seven, whatever he was at the time, and thought, you know, he he would have scored. Yeah. And maybe if that, I think if that had gone in, I think you know we would have, I think we would have turned it round. But you know, we'll we'll leave that one there. <laughs> you, you, you won the you won the Player of the Season award that year, didn't you? That was like some. Um, that was that the ninety-eight points year, was it? Yeah, yes, it was. Oh yes. yeah, yeah. That was that season, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was that wasn't a well. It was and wasn't a bad season, wasn't it? I mean, hell of a team, ninety-eight points. You mm-hmm. in player of the season? How were we not promoted? Yeah, and obviously the it, that was the hardest thing to I think ever to get over in football. You know, the, when you you're beaten by what was it, two points, something like that, and and then you go and lose in the semi final, and I think we were just we were flat. We we just couldn't get ourselves going for whatever reason it may have been, and it was just you know that was probably the longest summer of my life, you know, but wanting to get back to it, but and we we just we didn't kick, we didn't sort of kick on. I don't think we. We reinvested in in the team properly. You know, we the player who scored the second goal we should have signed in Jan, in the January. That uh, Christy was a Christian Jolly who scored the second goal in the final. We were we got told that he was available for transfer, and you know we said to Mozart, "Let's go and get him." You know, we were we were oh, we were close with Mozart to say, "Listen, he's a good player. Let's go and get him." You know, he'll he'll give us another sort of addition going forward and we didn't the club wouldn't sanction the deal for whatever reason and and then he goes and you know scores the winner in the, the playoff final and that sort of you know for what maybe 25 grand lost the club a million quid and that's you know that's the heartbreaking thing about it just, just going back to the ninety-eight point season I mean we, we've touched on this a few times on this podcast but do you think Swansea picking up Obeng was the real turning point in, in that season. Do you think that if we'd have kept him, just the way he, we the way the, the the team was set up, they were so threatening going forward, and he was a big part of that. And obviously, he went to Swansea. They replaced him with Alfie, who you know was a hard worker, big friend of Reese Williams, but you know probably not the same same level as Curtis. No, definitely not. And you know, with not with all respect to Dan Alfie, he was a good player, but. He wasn't on on the same level at the time. He he he'd come from an under 18s, was it maybe from Swansea, which is tippy tappy football, you know. And coming into the hustle and bustle of the conference is, is no easy feat at all. You know, it, it took him a long while to get used to it. The game, a lot of the games passed him by, whereas Kurt was in in the moments and was playing really well. And yeah, maybe it did. Maybe it did cost us in some games. I wouldn't have said all the games. And I think, you know, we sold Kate. I think, what, what, when did we sell Kate? Was it 
February. The, uh, yeah, just after the Brighton game, because yeah. uh, I think Rogers was at both of them, wasn't he? So it must have been back end of January. Mm. Back end of January, and we could have got Christian Jolly as well earlier on in, in the January window. So you sort of, you know, one player we don't get, which would have been a, a great addition, and then we lose, you know, probably the best fullback in the league mm. at the time, and then, you know, you you, you bring in a right back who's you know, was he good enough at the time? No. Then you've got other young lads, Steve Tomo and stuff like that, who were, you know, Trig, Declan Walker, who, who were trying to, you know, play games and stuff like that. And they're just not at that level at that at that time. We needed someone to, to slot back in straight away who was used to the conference. And we didn't have that. And yet maybe it did cost us. But I think, they, I think that's a small part of, you know, a few things that, that we didn't do well enough you know, to speculate, to accumulate, I think is, is a big thing, what we didn't do at that time. And, you know, being a fan zone club at the time is difficult, I suppose. You know, I wasn't part of the, you know, wasn't privy to the finances of what, what we're at the club. But I think if you can go and sign an attacker who's playing really well for 25 grand and maybe 800 quid a week, it's going to make you a, a better team going forward. Then I think you've got to take that chance for 18 months, you know, you had a lot of play, a lot of striking options in that summer without a contract. So if he does well and others don't, you get rid of them and you keep Christian Jolly. And that was, that was a, that was a big sort of issue for me around that time. We did, we weren't investing properly in the squad at all. Very interesting for you to say what fans have thought. I mean, so, you know, stuff like this has been on message boards, and we, we, you sort of think, oh, or maybe we're just plucking something out, out of, out of nothing. Maybe we're over-egging something, but no, you're saying what a lot of fans thought at the time, and and, and reflect on now. And just, just one last thing on that: when Curtis went, did that change your game at all? Because you know, a lot of the threat was from from the fullbacks, wasn't it? You know, they, they had good solid midfield. You know, the likes of, uh, you know good mobile front free. Did you sort of think, well, I need to overcompensate because we're losing a bit down the right or, or did, was that not something? No, because obviously Kate was such a, a good attacking fullback with his pace and, you know, deliveries and stuff like that. So I was more of a, a build up for like fullback where, you know, I'd join in link with, with wingers and, and strikers, whereas Kate would be able to knock it past the player and, you know, sprint past him for 60, 70 yards. He was that quick. So my game never sort of changed as much, but I just think as a defender, I was when during that sort of time where we would keep the ball and we were, I think we were a much better team with Curtis at the back. I then had to sort of tailor my game to not go forward as much because do you lose a bit of trust? Is it a psychological thing in in the players that are around you? I don't know. It was just, that was just a thing that went into my head that I did sort of, I didn't get us forward as much, but I still had to try. And, you know, you're always thinking of what's behind me at all times. And I didn't sort of feel like that when Kate was playing because I knew he was quick enough to to make them yards up. And there was no one quicker than him in the league. So I could go forward and, and you know, we'd shuffle over and that night Percival Kreitz and Kate if I was forward and vice versa, if Kate was forward, I would always shuffle around for him. So it was just, I think, a psychological thing that we didn't sort of attack as much as fullbacks 
from the day he left. I know the season, the 98 Poison, I'll probably... Um, season will probably be seen as a bit of a disappointment um, but one of the best memories for me was probably the Brentford game and the Brighton game in the FA Cup what are your memories of those games? Do you know the Brentford game is such a surreal game I don't, me- I don't remember much about the actual game itself I remember Tolly's goal and I remember like being so tired at the end because we worked our socks off but before the game we were coming out now Jamie Tolly was a bit of a laugher and a joker and we're in the tunnel and I come out. I, if I wasn't captain, I always come out last. So I'm just coming out of like the dugout door, eh, the dressing room doors of Brentford and I can hear them shouting, Tolly, and then he gets louder and we're waiting for, for the ref and he's going, these don't fucking want this. We look at them, they don't fucking want it. And he stood in the tunnel and he's got players right next to him and he's fucking screaming, these don't fucking want this. And I'm like, oh my God. And then we, we plays the game and we play, you know, we plays really well. He scores an absolute worldie. And then was it I can't remember, was it Gus Poyet, the manager? No, Uwe Rosler was the manager. And then in his press conference after the game, he said they won it in the he said Wrexham won it in the changing in the in the tunnel before the game. So I'm, we're laughing our heads off when we <laughs> because he's shouting and blinding in the dressing room and he said, you know, we, we didn't want it as much as they did. You could see it in the dressing room, in the tunnel before the game and we're killing ourselves laughing at Solly and, you know, that was just the, the character he was. He was superb for stuff like that and, you know, a good lad and, and a good player as well but just th- then that was the little thing I remembered over the Brentford game other than being absolutely shattered at the end of the game because it was such a hard game for us. I think we defended for about 75 minutes as soon as Jamie scored that goal that was it yeah, we're like, right, yeah we're it was yeah it was just the defend for your lives really but it was just a you know great occasion to be part of and then you go to Brighton away and you know great atmosphere great pitch great stadium all that and Gus Poyet decided to play I remember this oh god he decided to play without a forward and like you got Kreitz and Nat Knight Percival and they're looking at me and thinking I've got no one to mark I'm going, well, I've got two out here. Come and help me. And they're going, no, I'm staying where I am. And then I can't, I don't know what, Kate must have been on the right and he had two players to mark. I'm like, what's going on here? We just couldn't, couldn't figure out what they were doing. And uh, obviously, I think it was Jake. Was it Jake or Cisco that the away leg? She's love it. Yeah, it says, yeah. Cisco, the equal, oh, was it an equaliser, I think, wasn't it? And then you know, we get them back to our place and, oh, God, you know, one sort of header that just slow motion and you think oh no it was that was just heartbreak when when that goal went in after seeing Moz's absolute worldy yeah come on let's hold on let's hold on and and then to lose on, on penalties was you know that was again put wrenching yeah. great experiences you know to play against some of those players who you know went on to play in the Premier League and stuff like that and you, you know you acquitted yourselves really well against mm. teams like that was was great. How important were some of the characters in that changing room? Because even people who didn't play regularly, like Glenn Little, you had some absolutely massive characters in the changing room that season. You love Glenn Little. <laughs> I think it's vital in, in any squad, but like you say, I think obviously we had Glenn from, you know, we had Joss, the goalie, who was mad as a box of frogs. You had Glenn, who, who was crazy in, in some of the things that he'd done. Um, you had I don't think Brett Brett wasn't there at the time. Um, we had like Jake, the likes of Jamie Tolly, even Jake Spate and stuff like that. Was all always a quiet and reserved person. 
was such a big person to have in the squad, you know, in the changing rooms. He didn't say a lot outside of the dressing room, you know, he'd done a lot of talking on his pitch, on the pitch. I don't suppose he'd done many interviews and stuff like that, but in the squad, he was such an important member. Like, pretty much everyone was. The Joe Clarks, the Jay, the Keatsies, you know, to Nat and Kreitz. They're all, they were all big, big players. Even Mozzie, you know, when he was actually on the pitch, was huge for us. And then you had the younger lads who, who fed off that. And they, they were superb as well. The Sizz, you know, when he played, you know, so, at some games, Fizz, yeah, Sizz, you, you were thinking, how are you not playing higher up? And and they, that's the frustrating part of Sizz. And then you, obviously the Kurt and stuff like that who went on to play higher, but it didn't really go on for him. And the squad as a whole had, had you know, some great characters and, and great people in there. And that, I think, like so you go on about the, the 98 points, that's, I think if you spoke to any Wrexham fan in over the last 10, 15 years, that's got to have been the, the most difficult season for, for any fan and player. So every week on the podcast, we ask our guests um, for their most fearless moment, i.e. the best moment that brings the most pride or excitement um, in their time at the club. So, Neil, you've had a good 24 hours to think. What have you got for us? I've got two, if that's okay. Go for it. So one that fills me with most the most pride of being at Wrexham was the year I won the Player of the Year Awards. You know, to finish the league with 98 points and, you know, such great performers over the season. To win, I think I won eight out of nine Player of the Year awards over, you know, fans and, and different fans associations and stuff like that. So that's the biggest, the proudest moments I think I had at, at Wrexham. Um, and then probably the most excitement was probably the Kidderminster second leg. When we, I scored the penalty, which was it pretty much, you know, sealed the win for us. The atmosphere and, you know, the fan, just the way the fans were after the game was just superb. And, you know, if you could bottle that up, it would be one of the best things, you know, ever to have. So, uh, yeah, they're probably my two best, two of the best moments of my Wrexham career. Which uh, which fans group didn't give you a player of the year then? I don't know. <laughs> I because I think he won the other one. <laughs> I should have got a clean sweep, but I didn't. Mm. Shocking. That kiddie that second leg was uh, superb. Incredible. Yeah. The, the, even the, the first game was amazing. But I think, obviously, you're still 2-1. You know, you don't know how things are going to go. But yeah. that second leg, from, from the first minute, probably before the game, you know, the way the fans were and stuff like that was just superb. Because they, they finished above us that season, didn't they, I think? New points ahead of us, massively. I think. Yeah, yeah massively. Yeah. I, I didn't get a cottage pie that day, though. They'd sold out. I did, don't worry. <laughs> but it, 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 considering what was riding on it, it was such an accomplished, composed performance. Like There must have been nerves, but it didn't oh, look yeah. like it. Yeah, I think... I think we, did we score early on? It was Brett, wasn't it? I think yeah. broke away. Yeah. Looked yeah. offside to me. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah, it was borderline, wasn't it? Yeah, the more you see it, the more you think it could have been offside. Um, and then they, did they equalise? Yes, they did to bring it back to one goal. Yeah. Yeah. Joe Clark hit the scruffiest free kick. <laughs> yeah, you remember, and Lee Vaughan <laughs> put it in his own goal, didn't he? 
Yeah, he did. Yeah. And then that was, and then obviously the penalty to make it five was a uh, five-two was you know the the nail in the coffin for, for them. Like which, mm. but once that went in, I think you know we were still, you know, the fans were probably still a bit edgier four-two. But then when that one, it was just it was a pyro party in the lost our heads. Heads galore, amazing. And then you see like the um, some of the videos of being you know when on Twitter uh, on YouTube when you see the uh, the fans video on it when the penalty's going in there it just goes off and you're like wow I still get goosebumps goosebumps every time I watch the videos and you think oh you know to be in there would have just been amazing class it was it was good. <laughs> So after the 98-point season, obviously we get to the FA Trophy final, but you missed out on that. Yeah, so again, another tough part of my Wrexham career, I suppose. And, you know, I've I've done a, a book with uh, some guy who's, where I live in Heighton in Liverpool, there's, there's been probably 150 professional footballers from in and around Heighton. And he's done a book called Heighton Titans, which is coming out, I think, later on this year. And he asked me for... Uh, sort of a heading of what I would say about my career, and I, I thought long and hard on it. And then I, all, I, I, I thought, and I thought, well, a nearly man. And then when I sent it to him, he, he said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, I've never won anything." And he said, "Well, you won the FA Trophy." And I said, "Well, yeah, I did, but I didn't play." Now, if you talk, if you speak to any player. You know, they'll say, yeah, I've won a, a trophy, but if they didn't play in the final, it doesn't mean as much. And no matter whoever you're talking to, if they're speaking honestly and frankly with you, they'll say it doesn't mean as much. And it doesn't because it didn't play in the final. And that's the one of the biggest heartaches in, in, of my football career is not, is not playing in that final. You know, I scored in the semi-final, I played, I think, in every round leading up to yeah. it. And and then, you know, you, you get injured by just you know, a, a freak accident of kicking the ball down the line and I go over on my ankle and I can't play. And, you know, maybe that's the best thing that ever happened for Wrexham because I've never won a game at Wembley. So <laughs> it's, it's one of those things. They shouldn't have played me in the uh, in the player final as well. But they just, you know, that's the thing. I'm, I'm, I was, you know, I've never won at Wembley and I didn't play in the final. So that's the hardest thing for me. No, you can see that it hurts too. Um, I can imagine that's tough. Um, but he did get there for the playoff final, as you say, not such a good outcome. But what you know, we've talked a lot about this game, so we uh, on this podcast. But what what went wrong for you? You know, because it was a it's a bit of a nothing game, wasn't it? It was a poor game, wasn't it? Really, and you know, don't think there was many chances. And then you know, Brett misses probably a guilt edge chance, really, doesn't he? On about was it about seventy minutes, seventy five minutes or something like that? Around that, yeah. Um, and then you just you're thinking for for all the world he's got to score, he doesn't. And then we concede one. Okay, do you know what? I can't even. I couldn't even tell you what the goal. I, I remember the second goal. I couldn't say what the first goal was like. Um, we concede, and then we're basically throwing everything, you know, to try and get a goal. And then they hit us on the break and score the second. And, you know, again, just heartache. And then, uh, honestly, everything in, in my mind, as an individual, everything in my mind thinks, how you can't win at Wembley? What is going, what is wrong with you? And then you look at yourself and you, you go back to the other games that I've played 
I think, well, you're you're the common denominator here, and you can't win. How many win. games have you played at Wembley? Four. Really? Mm. Not and, one, uh, one. and the one that I didn't play in, that you know, I was part of, we won. So they're like the, like the biggest regrets, heartaches, whatever. You know, I can't say it's a regret because I've been there and I've played there, but it's probably the heartache of, you know, taking... I think the first time I played there, I had like a minibus with about 60 people going down, friends and family. Second time was a bit similar. And then, you know, I think people just got fed up with me going down there. <laughs> and so it was just like close friends and family by by the fourth time. Um, but it was just, you know, they're the, the toughest experiences I, I, I've had as a player in football. And, you know, the, the Newport game, I, I've never watched it back and I don't think I ever will. Um, and it's just one of those horrible, horrible games that no one wants to talk about anymore. So I'm fine with that. <laughs> One thing that might redress the balance for that season is a young Andy Gilpin got a Wrexham shirt with number three Ashton on the back. Um, yeah, but wasn't allowed to wear it by his then girlfriend, who said, "You're a grown man. You can't. <laughs> you can't walk around. You can't walk around the streets." Yeah, some- I have to agree with her there. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, she's dumped. So yeah, oh, <laughs> you've done the right thing. <laughs> you take the shirt with her. <laughs> Going back to that season, right? So you take over penalty duties from Jake Spate. Yeah. I want to know why you, first and foremost, and then we'll get to that Stockport game because I filmed a clip of that particular moment, which is, it's um, laced with swearing. So apologies to the listeners, but I'm going to play it in, in its entirety in a bit. But take us to that because you don't get many defenders that are put on spot kick duties, really. No, I suppose not. I think... When we played Brighton, I took a penalty and it was a really good penalty. And then Keatsy then was given the opportunity and he missed against Brighton. And then he missed against Forest Green away. And then from then on, I said, I just said, I'm on penalties. And no one sort of questioned it. So I just took it upon myself. I was on penalties. I'm on the next pen. And then, and that was it. I was then designated penalty taker. Um, uh, and then it was obviously the, the the Stockport game, which you know seems to create a lot of attention. Yeah, so I'll play this. This is forty-four seconds of pure ecstasy. It's the second penalty turning into agony. Yeah, it's the second yeah. penalty where, and I sort of zoom in on you as you trudge off the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> I think got your second yellow because none of us could believe it. No, uh, but have a listen. And get it going. Just your reaction to it, it's like, oh well, fair play, but bollocks to you. And you just sort of like <laughs> remonstrate as you're walking off. Take us through that because it was such a it was such a good a good game. Oh, um, the game itself was it was a great game to play in, but I nearly got arrested after the game. <laughs> yeah. Police come in and, and wanted to arrest me. So what happened was in the first half, one of the 
um, one of the crowd up the the other end when we were, I think I thought I'd scored a penalty and then something had happened and it was a corner, I think. And I don't know whether I went over to take the corner or get the ball or something. And he went, my daughter had not long been born, I think. And he he was going, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, due to your daughter, like Jimmy Savile. So I'd gone by that point and like the red mist had come over. And I think even to this day of a scene, I'd probably know who he was and I'd probably punch his head in. And uh, I'd, I'd, I'd sort of like the red mist had got way too far. And I was, I think I was frothing at the mouth and everything. I was calling them all kinds and I was, you know, and then, it sort of like I got my head back around it. Okay, so we're back playing, and then I got booked for something stupid. I think it was time. I got booked for time wasting on a throwing. That's how bad it was. And and then obviously second penalty comes and I score. And then as I'm standing here, I must have been about three or four yards away from from the fans, thinking I can't go in here because I know I'm going to get sent off. And then all the players jump on me back, and they all take me into the, into the crowd. And I'm like, no, no, no. And then, like, I'm half celebrating because we've scored and I'm thinking, no, I'm going to get, I could get sent off. And what does he do? I think because of the way the game had gone, he, he sends me off. And then that, you know, you're walking in, trudging. And then, so we're three one up at this point. And then as I'm sitting in the dressing room, my ears a goal going and it was three two. And I'm thinking, oh no, oh no, please. And doing it. And then final whistle goes. So as I had my shower, the police are waiting at the, the uh, players' entrance. And want to have a wave at me and stuff like that. And fortunately enough, I spoke to the ref and I told him what was said. And uh, so I explained to the police and I said, listen, if you're going to go and get CCTV footage of every person coming into that stand, I'll find who he is and you go and arrest him then. And I'll go to wherever you want to go. And, I, you know, you can arrest me for whatever you want to arrest me for. We can't do that. I said, well, why not? And he said, well, we can't. And I said, well, what do you want me to do about it then? You, I'm telling you what he's done. I've told the ref, so it's all on record. And he went, just get yourself on the coach and go. And it's okay, that's fine. See you later. And just went. And then the next day, my, uh, sorry, two days later, comes in and Mozzie wants to hit me with a week's fine for getting sent off. And, <laughs> Ouch. Uh, yeah, I said, listen, you've got no chance, Mozzie said, because all the players took me in there and uh, there's no chance of you getting any money off me. And he said, oh, Okay. That's all right then, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. it wasn't as nice as that, but it was along those lines. Neil, what what you were saying then about about what that fan said to you? Absolutely horrific. How often does that happen? Does that is that quite on that a magnitude? Point? On that magnitude, never. That's the only ever time it's ever happened to me. You know, you get called stuff, which you know. See, to me, that's that that's. Uh, that's as bad as being a racist. What he said to me about you know about a, a child, my daughter was you know she was only young at the time, so stuff like that is 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 equivalent to being a racist. But because for whatever reason the police didn't want to act upon it, you know whatever it may be, and that's fine. But in not I've never experienced that much. It, it, fortunately, in my career, you know I've been told you shit and stuff like that from Wrexham fans as well as other fans. But <laughs> um, no, I, I've been, I think I've been fairly fortunate. I've always tried to play, although I've always been serious. I've always, you know, fans are, are giving me a little bit of banter and stick. I've always tried to go along with it as well as I played. And I think that they've, they've taken to that as well. 
you get much flack? Have you had much flack from from Wrexham fans that you've kind of taken exception to? Um, I don't think so. No, I think again, I, th- I think I've been pretty fortunate. Although you know, some have said that you know I'm shit or I'm not playing well. I should have left and stuff like that. You know, that's obviously every, everyone's entitled to their opinion and stuff. So mm. I don't, you know, as long as they, I don't, as long as they don't get personal, then no, you know, I've never, I've never sort of taken any any real serious criticism or stuff like that. I did off the Stockport fans after that night. That was yeah. quite an eventful night on Twitter. I'll tell you that. But <laughs> um, I've since I've I've since sort of only over Twitter have you know got mates with a with a couple of Stockport fans and. You know, they've always asked how it was and stuff like that. And, you know, if they've seen anything on Twitter that we, that I've done, they've always commented that saying well done or anything like that. So, you know, they've they've always been quite quite fair and, and friendly with us. You got a, uh, a new three-year deal, didn't you, in November of that year? Um, and then obviously, I don't think that, that the full three years was fulfilled because, you know, we get to the playoff final again, we've gone over that, the Newport game and, and, and so on and so forth. So just take us full circle to to when was it May two thousand fifteen? Um, Gary Mills comes in, decides um, your surplus to requirements, and ends up opting to sign Sean Newton instead. I, I read um, a previous article that, that was done not longer where you said that your conversation with Gary Mills was was fairly brief, to put it mildly. Um, take us through how that how that came about, what you thought of him. To be honest, it it was exactly how I said. It was probably a thirty second conversation at most. Um, he just said he's gone. He, he, you know, I'm I'm not needed. He's signing somebody else, and and that was it. No thanks, uh, nothing. It was just no. I don't. I, I won't be signing yet. I'll see you later, and that was it. Didn't really didn't hear anything from the club or anything like that over it. Um, it was just. He told me that I wouldn't get be off being offered a new deal, and and that was the end of that. That was pretty much it in a nutshell, which is a disappointing thing, you know. No official sort of thanks or anything like that from the club, um, but you know, is that football nowadays? I don't know. You know, it wasn't a nice way to leave the club, being you know basically. I think it was probably a month after the season has ended before anyone was in touch. And and then that was it. Thirty seconds, no thanks, no nothing. Just put it on the on the website that uh, retain players, release players, and that was it. Did that leave a bad taste in the mouth in terms of how you know five years of giving your all to 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 a club and then it's like yeah, see you later. Yeah, I think it would anyone. You know, I think anyone who knows me and anyone who watched me over those five years would 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 vouch that I give everything that I possibly had for the football club. I think the last twelve months were not great um, on on both sides or from both sides. Um, but I don't think my commitments, attitude, determination can ever be questioned for for Wrexham Football Club. Um, and to be told in a thirty second conversation and and that was pretty much it um, was was yeah was bitterly disappointing and does does leave a bit of a, a sour taste in your mouth, but. You know, I'm 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 not gonna hold a grudge over, you know, whoever it was who, who, you know, obviously Gary Mills made the decisions. Sean Newton's a good player, so I can't sort of question that side of things. The way it was done, yeah, I can. And you know, I'd like to think if somebody was 
sacking them or, or releasing them of the duties, they do it with a little bit more dignity. Irrespective, irrespective of you saying you didn't enjoy success at the club in the sense of winning anything, I still don't think you should dumb down the part you played in the FA Trophy thing because we took every team apart on that run and conceded very few goals. So I think you, could, you should give yourself a bit more credit in regards to that. But on the whole, over the five years, despite not winning anything per se, do you still regard it as a successful time? Because yeah. I think I, I, I would say that you should. A million percent. My, even my home life was, that was the best five years of, of my, whole, my life as a, as a footballer, as, as a person, you know, brought a new child into the world. Everything was absolutely fantastic. Loved, loved the five years. Loved being at the football club. Was made to feel a home by everyone, from Al the Kitman to, you know, all the people behind the bar and in, in the, the players' lounge after games. Every, you know, the, the people who worked in the car park and stuff like that. Everyone was, you know, made me to feel welcome and stuff like that. And for that... I, you know, I can oversee, you know, the way it all ended to to some yeah. degree. Do you know what I mean? Because of the time I had at Wrexham, I never had anywhere else. You know, I, I love my time at Shrewsbury. Them two sort of four and a half year, five year spells of both clubs were great. But that time at Wrexham is, I know I will hold dear to my heart for, and, you know, the way that they... T- take people in, you know, as a, as a scouser and stuff like that and accept them. You know, if anyone said to me, oh, what what, what do you think about signing for Wrexham? Jump, go and do it. A million percent. Because I know if you give everything you've got, they will take you on board no matter what. And, you know, I I think I've done that. I, you know, I give everything I've got and I think I've got it back in spades off, off the fans. Yeah. Um, Neil, can I ask one question? It's come up in a few pods now. Are you the biggest moaner that Wrexham AFC have ever had? Because I think three <laughs> people in the quickfire section have all yeah. cited you as a moaner. Um, possibly, yeah. But <laughs> when I say this, yeah, I, I was a moaner and I still am. But I only do it for the best of the club or whoever it is around me. Now, I heard Mozza say he would moan over food or over a cup of tea. Yeah, I would because if the food was shit, why, you know, you don't put a diesel in a Ferrari. You know, we're, listen, we're not, we're not Ferraris by any stretch, but you don't put shit in footballers. And sometimes some of the food we were served was horrendous. And, you know... Like what? Give us an example. Oh, listen, you'd have to, you need to have seen it to believe it. Prison food. That kind of vibe. Yeah, it was. So for the fact, although, listen, Wrexham, you had to pay for your dinners, right? And it wasn't optional. So they took took money out of your wages for the food. I had to go to the shop every day after training and buy my own dinner because I wouldn't eat the food. So that tells you something over why I would moan over food. But that was just one thing. I did moan over things, but only because I wanted the best. I wanted to be the best person of me, and I wanted everyone else to be the best person of them. So that meant me moaning over trying to get something better. I would do it. Drinks, whatever, you know, the hydration gels and stuff like that. I would 
complain to Mozzie about getting them in for the players. So it made us a better team. And if it, you know, I'd like to say it worked because you know we've done really well in, 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 at times in, in you know throughout seasons and stuff like that. So for for moaning a little bit, I think I improved the club. You know, little bits and bobs, maybe one percent, two percent, but that you know the one percent and two percent become major factors when there's twenty players in a squad. Who would rival you for biggest moaner then for the title of your trophy? <laughs> I don't, you're going I don't, over my bloody quick-fire questions here, Yeah, you're going to ruin the oh, quick-fire questions. We've got, we've got to give him a chance to deflect some of that moaning attention. I, you know what? I, I, don't, I don't think anyone could actually rival me. <laughs> uh, and I'm being honest, I don't think they could. I think Jay Harris was up there as a bit of a moaner, but... I don't. I don't think he'd. Uh, I don't think anyone could rival me. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Neil, can I ask you about um, Kevin Wilkin? Obviously, we haven't talked about that era much. Um, it's well known that you weren't a fan, especially by the end, and you weren't happy with uh, sort of the way that the FA Trophy final went. Understandably, what was it about about it that you didn't that didn't work for you when he come in? Listen, Kevin brought some good players into the club. You know, Manny Smith, Louis Maltz were fantastic signs for the club. And for that, he can't be questioned. But when his basically, his motive was be the player's mate. And, you know, when you come to a club like Wrexham, that's, you're not a friend of the players. You're a manager. You earn their respect by... You know, whether it be like what Mosadon was, you know, as a player, he earned our respect or you earn the respect by doing things on a training ground as a coach. And I don't think he did that ever. He tried to be, when you're a part-time manager, you see you have two contacts a week with, with players, you know, generally for an hour and a half. So you can be the mate. You don't really do, you don't really go through a lot of stuff as a part-time player and stuff like that. But when you're in a full-time environment and there's such at stake, you know, to, to be a manager of Wrexham Football Club. You don't go around being a friend. You go around and you start busting heads to say, right, you're not performing, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. It was, it was a fucking holiday camp. It was a table tennis table in the in the meeting room that we'd had, I'd had for four years as a meeting room. Straight away, it was turned into a table tennis room. And I'm thinking, what the fuck's going on? And I, I was livid. And I'm thinking, this is fucking wrong. They've done this. And I'll be honest, I honestly think, all right, he'd done all right with it. You know, I don't know what Nuneaton's budget was, but he was doing okay with them. Do I think that the club done it on a cheap and took a massive gamble? One million percent. Mm. One million percent. And again, another regret. Of, well, is it a regret? I think it was a mistake of the club to employ him. I really do. They should have gone and got someone who was tried and tested in that league and who was ready to knock some heads together and say, listen, you're not cutting your weight, you're not doing this, mm. you're not doing that. Not someone who's going to try and be your mate. We had Kev on and he 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 was really unhappy with... He, he was very frustrated that he didn't get uh, an assistant. The club basically weren't willing to... He brought his own assistant in, in Gary Mills. Yeah, I think the what, what, I think in the in the podcast he suggests that I, I don't think that would have been his first choice. Basically, uh, yeah, but he said it, he wasn't really given the money to go and get a Graham Barrow sort of assistant. You know, do you someone think, of, yeah, of that, yeah, standing. Do you think that would have 
helped him. I'm getting the the sense that not it wouldn't have made much of a difference as possibly, far as you're concerned. Possibly, but Gary Mills was an ex player who hmm. was again a bit of a fancy Dan for me, wanting to be everyone's mate, not someone who's gonna put a good session on and, and work on things. And all right, if he didn't get whoever he, his first choice was. Don't just go and get the next person who becomes available. Go and do your research on someone. Go and try and get an experienced coaching who's going to help you, who's worked in the full-time environments. Don't get this, a young fella who's only, you know, I was, this is this is the, the thing about it. I was more qualified than both of them put together to, to, to put coaching jobs on or uh, coaching sessions on or to be a manager. He was rushed through his A licence because he got the job. Now, you tell me that that's not a bad idea from from a football club on a sense what you're Wrexham football club and you you're employing listen I'm not saying coaching badges are the be all and end all but a player was more more qualified than him to to do a job and surely there was there was better candidates out there hmm. and and that that's a, a, again a gripe that I have with the football club that I think they've done it on the cheek. I really do. Was it? Was he? Was he too too soft in training sessions? In yeah. that he wasn't. Yeah, we do football. We do shooting sessions, and he was the manager. He's going to like fag the balls in off the road and stuff like that. Steve Tomo with a shot that went over the main road on Colliers, and he was going to get it. What's the, you know? When would you ever see a manager? Going to fag a ball from a from over a row. If a player did it that far and that bad, if I'm a manager, the player's going to get it himself, and I don't care where he's going because that's shit. Did he? He, did... he was laughing. <laughs> See, now I I can't respect the manager who does that because that to me is not good enough from where I've been as a player and what. I've been through at Wrexham as a player and the standards that I set myself and my teammates, I can't respect a manager who's willing to accept that. That's bollocks. My, my French, I'm really sorry. But that's shit. Did he, did he need to give someone a bit of a bollocking basically in the first week to set his stall out? Probably. Hmm. But he was too busy trying to get them all on side to be his mate. Instead of going after a, you know, a, a senior pro in that changing room, he was trying to be everyone's mate and it didn't work. You know what? This surprises me because even though he hadn't really managed at like a, a full-time level, he was a full-time player. I mean, he was, you know, he would have known what it what it should have taken yeah. in that dressing room and in, in that training ground. So I'm surprised he didn't he didn't have that. I think that as a as a player. Now this this again, this is where when I went to to Kevin Zewitz, I found it difficult to take my full-time experience into part-time playing. Now, he's gone the other way where he was a part-time manager and gone into a full-time role as a manager. And I th- I genuinely think he found it difficult to adjust. And, you know, he was given, what, just over 12 months, was he? And, you know, the, the club got rid of him. So, he did. maybe he needed more time. I don't know. But... It, it just it didn't work, and I think from the get go, it was obvious it it wasn't going to work. 
you, you were unhappy as well with the um, decision to take uh, Keats off in the FA Trophy final, as was yeah. Mr. Gilpin, wrote a whole article about it, which... One uh, <laughs> substitution cost him his job. He may have got a summer out of it and he may have got the summer to bring in players and build a squad. He may have, if he didn't make that decision. He, he justified it um, as needed fresh legs on. Was that right, lads, if we can remember? Uh, you know, he, he do, are you that convinced that that cost us the, 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 the game? Yeah, I've never been more convinced of anything in my life. And that's why I said to him at the end of the game, I told him straight at the end of the game that he'd cost us the, the trophy final. Hmm. And he brought Robbie Evans on and... and when I'd done it, I, I was probably the wrong time to do it and the way I'd done it. But I was that frustrated and angry, whatever you want to call it. I, I you know, when, when I was probably a couple of bits lower than when someone said he wants to Jeremy, uh, Jimmy Savile, my daughter. That's how close I was because we were cruising that game, cruising mm-hmm. 2 0 up. After an hour, was it? Something like that? And he brings Keatsy on, who's, I'm not being funny, is stood in the middle of the pitch with an absolute cigar in his mouth and he's playing ball side to side and was fine. When he brought him off, I went and got the armband off him and I went, are you okay? And he went, yeah. And I went, are you injured? He went, no. And what the fuck's going on? He went, I don't know. And then I looked over to the bench, I seen Carl Darlington and I seen Michael Oakes sit down. They didn't want anything to do with it. And that was one decision. And I told him straight at the end of the game, I said, you've, you've fucked up. You made a massive mistake. And I, the way I've done it, I, I say, I, I apologise to Robbie Evans, whether he, he, you know, he wants to believe my apology or what. But I'd, I'd fucking gone. I said, you haven't got a fucking clue what you're doing. You've just absolutely ruined the game. Hmm. I, you know, to bring a young lad on with... Half an hour to go, like a rabbit in the headlights. Robbie Evans is a fantastic player. Should be playing a lot higher than what he's doing. But he was like a rabbit in the headlights. Go on, sorry. No, I was just going to say, I mean, this wasn't like a one-to-one with with Wilkin. This was... This was in front of everyone, yeah. Right, okay, yeah. Well, what did he say? What was his his response? He didn't have a response because he knew he'd fucked up. He couldn't have had a response to it because he knew he'd made a mistake. And no, no one, no one was trying to back him up because he knew he'd made the mistake. And then after when he'd finished speaking, I just said, "Listen, we need to try and do our damnedest to win this game." And then they scored again. And then you know, Louis Malt scores, who again, fantastic player. Um, you know, absolutely devastated for him. He's had a, another long term injury at the minute, so yeah. You know, he's, he's going through a bit of a difficult time, but. It's just. It, it sounds like Kev had lost the dressing room, certainly with you and maybe with some of the other senior players, much earlier on in the season. Is it you didn't warm to him? Was that quite difficult, like as a as a dynamic in the dressing room and, and in in the club the whole season? Yeah, I think it was, but I, I wouldn't say. It, listen, I, I, it's a hard one to put into words, I, although. I didn't respect him. I still give everything for him, you know, and I would have, I played games when I probably shouldn't have through, you know, little knocks and stuff like that. And, and I think other players did as well, but 
ultimately his decision making, big decisions, and the, his I think just his general attitude around the you know being trying to be everyone's mate just didn't work with you know players who have been in that full time environment for years you know who knew what it took to to you, know, you look at like Keaty's won six promotions or something like that you had other players who have been tops of leagues and you know Brett's played in the Premier League and he basically just discarded Brett straight away didn't want to have it didn't want to know him. Um, all right, Brett was coming to the end of his career, but he's still someone who's got bags full of experience and stuff like that. And, you know, he didn't, he, he just, he wanted to, if you didn't be his friend, you weren't, you were basically discarded or he basically, he was keeping you at arm's length and it was the wrong way of doing things. And it, it rubbed me up the wrong way it did, yeah. Um, but like I say, where I got, I got concussion in the pre-season um, and I think we were ready to start the season. I probably shouldn't have played and he asked me to play and I did, but I probably shouldn't have because um, that's, like I say, I didn't do that for him. i done that for me and the fans and the club. And, you know, I, I played in, as I say, I played in games where I shouldn't have played and I think other players did as well. But that was for the club and not for him and, you know, ultimately... He lost his job and it was, you know, probably six months too late, in my opinion. I don't know why I keep like having to look them up, but um, I should know these off by heart. Anyway, Neil, who is the most skillful? <sighs> Glenn Little, I think. Oh, popular with Liam. <laughs> Who, this also might be uh, Glenn Little. Who is the worst dressed? Could be Pogba. Could be Joss. <laughs> could be Mozza. Listen, I think Mozza was still living in the year uh, in the seventies with some of his jeans he used to put in. <laughs> so, uh, absolute yeah, flares. So I'm, I'm going to give it to Mozza. <laughs> All right, nice, very good. Next, next, uh, stone cut. Jeans, good. <laughs> right, I'm not going to ask you who the biggest moaner was. Um, I'm going to go straight into uh, which teammate was the tightest? Tightest with money. Glenn Little. Wow. Really? Oh, yeah. Tight as cramp. The only thing he'd spend his money on was gambling. Anything <laughs> else. He was tight as cramp, honestly. Yeah, probably shouldn't <laughs> laugh. I'm, I'm going to sort of go off a little bit, but did you, did you know much about the house? I knew a little bit about it, yeah. <laughs> the lap delay says it all. Yeah. <laughs> I think the least said the better about the house. <laughs> right, I want. I, we're going to get into that house one. We're just going to do an episode all about the house, right? <laughs> um, next question is, who's the most underrated? person didn't really get the plaudits they deserved. I think... West, Westy was one who... I think the fans didn't didn't give him enough credit than what for what you know. I know he got man of the match in the in the uh, trophy final, but such a good player, good, such a good professional, absolute Adonis of a man. You know, ripped was just the fittest player at the club. Um, and then, oh god, yeah, tough, 
so I think Joe Joe Clark as well. Yeah, a lot of people said Joe Clark. Yeah. Oh God. So I, I, you could flip a coin between them two, I think. And I think I think because he was there longer, I think Joe Clark. Right, I'm not going to ask you the biggest moaner is because obviously you've won that award, but I'm going well, to slightly change the question to who was the most batshit? Joss. Joss me, A.B. By a country <laughs> mile. But I don't think anyone could ever hold a candle to Joss. Yeah. This is the person who dropped his suit in a puddle going down to Wembley for the FA Trophy final. Remember, we had that snow... <laughs> and we were we were coming out of the we were coming out of Colliers ready to get on the coach and I think it was the only it was the only puddle that was in the car park. Everything else was snow, <laughs> and he managed to drop his suit into the puddle. Yeah. Well, oh yeah. yeah. He was, balls as well, actually. But yeah, he was off his head, Josh. Great lad, but absolutely round the bend. Is it just because he, you know he was Cameroonian, or just because he was just he was just batshit? I, I, yeah, I think a bit of both. I think he was such yeah. an eccentric goalkeeper, wasn't he? And you know, I think obviously being from Cameroon as well, he was just off his head. I think whether keepers were like that, where he's from, I don't know. But he was, he was a great lad, and I think it, you know before he ruptured his Achilles, he was doing he was superb for us. He was doing really well, and then obviously Maxi ends up taking over in goal, and you know Maxi's gone from strength to strength since since finishing at, at Wrexham. So. You know, I think two two great goalkeepers that we had there for for long periods of my time. I, I thought you might go Jay Harris for the most batshit. No, you can console Jay. I, I, I think you know I was quite a calm and influence on Jay a lot of the right. time while I was there. So you know, don't get me wrong, I've I've seen him do a few crazy things, but you know, on large part he was quite a you know well well behaved. Who's going to mention Abba Rusworth, the night out in Abba Rusworth, which we've already got? Slight, <laughs> what happened? With, which which one? We had a couple of nights in Abba Rusworth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, well, which, whichever one's the most notorious, the one where he's had a, a little bit of a, a, a disagreement with a bouncer, I think. What was that one? Oh, I don't know too much about that one. <laughs> Is that, they all blend into one, do they? <laughs> Listen, I've had a, I had one where... I seen Frank Sinclair doing press ups in a nightclub. <laughs> I don't even know. Is it Terrell Cruz or something like that? Cruz, yeah. he, he was doing press ups in a, on a on a dance floor nightclub. It was hilarious. <laughs> They're just some of the things that you know that happened on Avarice within the uh, pre-season away days. Bonkers, love it. You've touched on it a little bit already in terms of what playing for for Wrexham was like, uh, and you know you you always gave one hundred percent. You know what, what did it mean to you? What, what does Wrexham mean to you as a, as a club? Obviously, you've played for quite a few clubs over your career, but you know what what do we mean to you? I think it, like when you when you go to Wrexham and you, I think you see what it means to the fans. Then, like I. I it, it always gives you that little bit extra. You know, you can go to a ground and it can be flat and you think, how do you, how, you know, how are they going to get me up get me up or give me that extra, you know, one or two percent that it may be to to a game. Whereas when you play it at home or away, you know, the, the following was always great away, but it was always, they were always right behind you and they always kicked, headed, tackled every ball with you. 
And I think that's what, you know, I, I listened to, to Brother's podcast the other day and, you know, I think he, he, he spoke really well about what it means to play for Wrexham. And it's embracing all of that, of, of taking everything in, of what the town is and, you know, what they're about. It's a working class town. You know, I'm, a, I'm from a working class city, from a working class household. So I know what it means to for the hard work and, you know, for that extra bit of graft and determination. And I think Wrexham as a football club have got that. And, you know, since they've, they've fell out the football league, it's been tough. But you still get that passion, that enthusiasm that you need and you want from a fan base. So that's that's what it means. It, it meant for them five years, it meant everything for me. And, you know, it, it was such a, a great place to play and, and to a great crowd to play in front of as well. What do you think about the season ahead, Neil? Because obviously you're aware of the the craziness surrounding it. Well, whilst we've been recording this, Ryan Reynolds has been mentioning the club on the one show. It's like something that just never ends. It's so so bizarre. See, um, I, I don't want to. You know, as a an outsider, I feel it's got a potential to turn into a circus, and I don't want that. And that's sort of like the biggest thing. You know, I'm sure everyone wants the two owners to come over and to meet the crowd and the fans and stuff like that. But will it take away from the playing side of things? I hope not. You know, I, I read on, on Twitter today about, you know, some of the, the direction fans that, you know, were moaning about the new sort of era of fans that they're getting. Surely it can't be a bad thing. No. Do you know what I mean? And all right, the diehard fans, I get that. But, if you support your football club and you're putting money into the football club, surely it's only going to be a good thing. Yeah. You know, I think they've still got to work on the recruitment side of the, of the players. You know, I'm sure the manager, you know, high-profile manager, great appointments. Again, never worked in this league, I don't think. So, you know, it's a gamble. Because this, if you spoke to any lower league, League One, League Two, conference man who've managed in all those three leagues... This is the most difficult league to get out of by a country mile. And I've always said, you know, get a manager who's, who's got out of this league, whether he's done it once, twice, three times, whatever, try and go and approach him and see what, you know, his experiences were and stuff like that. And But they've got a good manager, high-profile manager, um, you know, got a good group of staff around him as well. Hopefully, you know, I'm sure he'll be funded the right way in terms of recruitment if he can get the right players in, it's drawing close to the season now. So, you know, he's not going to have a lot of time to work with them if he does get them in. And also he's got COVID as well. So, you know, there's got to be, there's going to be a lot of stumbling blocks in his way. But fingers crossed, you know, it doesn't turn into a circus and it is a, a positive year for him. It's good to have that viewpoint because we've sort of, we've asked some of the players about things like um, you know the documentary. How would you have found that if something like that was going on at your time at Wrexham? Um, I think I'd have found it difficult to be honest because I, I I think I might I may have gone into Michelle a little bit, and whether some players have done that on the documentary, I don't know. You know, I've, I've never. I only I only actually heard about it on listening to. Um, Brothers' podcast. I didn't even know anything about it, and it got me. It did get me thinking. You know, I, I, could I be myself? And you know, what goes on in the dressing room 
is is for you know what it stays in the dressing room. You know, there are, you see arguments and stuff like that between players, staff, whoever it may be. There's you know the the odd scrap, you know, sort of pushing and shoving and stuff like that. That should stay where it is in the dressing room. And it's, you know, it ends there and then. If it's in a if it's in a documentary, you know, would you want a fan thinking, well, what are you saying that for? And then takes a a negative sort of spin of your persona and your you as a person. No, I wouldn't. So it's difficult to to have a positive look on it unless, listen, if they go out and win a trophy this year, then I don't think anyone would care less about it. You know, it'd be a great view. But when the, if it's not going right, I don't think it's a good idea. And you see that the early stages of the Salford documentary and stuff like that, I didn't really, I didn't really like it. You know, people are losing jobs and stuff like that, and I don't know. It's, it's not really for me, if I'm honest. Can I ask you about Keats? Um, obviously, you played with him, you know him quite well. Do you think he was hard done to at the end of the season? Do you think he deserved a chance with a budget? <sighs> yeah, it's difficult. I think yes. You know he. He would love to have had a budget because I, you know, as an outsider looking in, I'm assuming is you know the the, the pay strings were tight getting players in. Some of the players that they've signed in the past have not been very good players, if I'm being honest. You know, from previous managers, and I think probably Dean's made a couple of mistakes in in the transfer market as well. So, I think if you if you get a bit of an open checkbook as such, you know, to go and sign Paul Mullen on a three year deal. You know, that's unheard of in non-league football. To get a sign a three-year contract is unheard of. So to offer some players stability and stuff like that, players play better. And that's just guaranteed. They play better when they're stable and they know where the next paycheck's coming from. Um, so, yeah, I probably would have liked to have seen him given a, another year. But, you know, when once the new... Uh, owners took over it. It was never looking good for them anyway. I think they were going to try and get a higher profile manager to, you know, to suit the the high pro the profile of the club now because it, it's going in the right direction. Post Wrexham, Barrow, Southport, Druids, Flandidno. Your you Wikipedia page needs a dating. Where are you now? Nowhere. I'm done now. Done. Yeah. Was your last club Flandidno? Yeah, yeah. They only played once. Um, just because of COVID, they didn't get the license off the FAW to to continue the league, so that was cut short. Um, and obviously, the the three years out of two, it's absolutely loved. You know, great time played in Europe, which not many people can say. So there's just things like that that you know you you go and sign for a small town team in, in you know just outside the Wrexham, and you know you get a chance to play in Europe, which was you know fantastic. So what are you looking at now? I mean, are you are you looking to go into coaching? Are you going to do some Sunday league? Is do you want to you know play that that way or? Um, I think the the two years I had after Wrexham, I I hated football. If I'm being honest, I just fell out of love with it. Got injured at Wrexham, um, and that was a tough one to get back from. Um, so didn't didn't play as much when I got back fit. Uh, struggled to walk for two or three months after that. Uh, and then I went to Southport with Bish and 
this lasted about five games. We brought uh, Steve Bearing, who, who was good. You know, we we were get we got ourselves out the relegation zone, and then we lost away to uh, I can't remember someone down south five nil, and he sacked them, and he brought Andy Priest in, which is pretty much Kev Wilkin times two. Oh, right. just didn't want to didn't want to know anyone's opinions. Was all about himself and didn't have a clue about the conference the conference in general. Just didn't know who players were, didn't want to ask anyone's opinion. And it was just the longest few months of me. Like, I couldn't wait to get away. Uh, I hated football. I thought, that's it, I'm done. And then Jay Starkey rang me, um, who had done a coaching badge with in a couple of years earlier, and said, would you be interested in coming over? So went over for a chat, met the manager, who was great. And I said, yeah, well, I'll, I'll give it a go. And three, I was there for three years, absolutely loved it. Um and then obviously COVID cut the last season short by a couple of months. But, you know, again, met some great people, some great lads and uh, had some good times. Well, Neil, you said earlier uh, that playing for Wrexham meant everything to you. We, You were very much a fan favourite. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Tim, I think, nominated you to be in our best Wrexham 11. So you were very, very highly thought of. Yeah. Um, Didn't quite get here, like, but... <laughs> You had you had number three on the back. Andy Giltman's got you on a shirt. A bit cringe, but we'll we're, you know, just gives you an idea. <laughs> Said he was a young Andy Gilpin, but he was 40, wasn't he? <laughs> uh, so, very highly thought of. Thank you very much for coming on. We really appreciate your time. Cheers, Jens. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thanks, Ashley. Cheers. Appreciate it. Bye bye. Take care. Okay, last but not least, it's time for Shitey Heroes. Uh, last week, we opted for Richard Hope to join Kempson at centre-back. Uh, this week, it's left-back. Uh, Andy, you can go first again. Why not? You're usually the best prepared. Um, so you've got a maximum mm. of 60 seconds to make your case for why your left-back should um, make our worst Wrexham 11 ever. Three, two, one, go. He was probably the worst player I've ever seen in Wrexham covers, uh, colours, and I've seen some absolute dirge in my time. Tyler Garrett was actually quite memorable as a loan signing, but only because of how bad he was. He came from Stockport because Jennings was injured, and I kept a close eye on him when we took on Chesterfield just before lockdown. He ambled around the field, offering zero threat in an attacking sense, and looked lost defensively. I actually felt sorry for him. Then I remembered he was a professional footballer playing for my team. Then I was a bit less sorry. Apparently on his Bolton debut, he came on late in the game, gave away a last-minute penalty that resulted in a 2-1 loss. I think that sort of sums him up. Maybe we didn't see the best of him. Maybe there was a player in there somewhere. He probably was a nice guy, looked after old ladies, gave money to charity, etc., etc. But we've had Neil Ashman today, one of my favourite left-backs in recent times. This fella couldn't even find the string not to lace his boots right. Nicely done, Andy, with time to spare. Um... And just for the, so the listeners are aware, Liam's internet has been flawless today and Andy's been relegated to his phone due to connection issues. So uh, that explains the, the quality of the sound there. And also just, just to give to give Liam credit, 
where it's due because he has uh, sorted his internet problems. Um, but anyway, I'll uh, I'll go next. Um, three, two, one, go. Uh, I actually found this quite tough uh, since I've been a fan. Really, I think we've been relatively well served by left backs, especially during conference period where we've had players like Neil Ashton and James Jennings for long periods but I'm going to nominate Johnny Hunt Uh, he started as a left back I think we quickly realised that wasn't really his best position he got pushed quite a lot further up the pitch but uh, he had a torrid time in the FA Trophy final people were skipping past him but really I've only nominated him for that horrific two-footed lunge against Barnett Um, do you remember it Reds 1-0 down in a poor game which burst into life when uh, Edgar Davids elbowed Steve Wright. David was sent off and Wright was sent off for having the temerity of kissing David's elbow. Anyway, Keats scored from the subsequent free kick. We just had to see out the last sort of five minutes without doing anything stupid. On comes Johnny Hunt to see out the game. Lunges from about five yards away, about halfway up someone's leg, above his knee by the looks of it. Gets sent off. Uh, cue a very nervous few minutes with nine men. But we held on. Feel a bit harsh nominating Johnny, but that's my nomination. Right. Um, Tim, do you want to go next? Yeah, Andy. I didn't realise Johnny Hunt had come on that late on in the game. I thought it was earlier than that. No, I think he came on after the red card. I think we needed an extra defender on. (laughs) (laughs) And he then got sent off with his first touch of the game. Anyway, uh, Tim, uh, 60 seconds maximum. Three, two, one, go. I've gone with the legend that is Imad Buanan. I think that's how you pronounce it anyway. Not so much defensive zero, but cult hero. Um, first name terms, everybody knows Emad. Don't need to know his surname. He was brought in by Brian Flynn. He's usually pretty decent for an eye for a player, but for whatever reason, his uh, his player da had sort of disappeared that day because Emad was an atrocious defender. He was a marauding left left fullback. He would just gallivant up the pitch. Didn't know what he was doing with it. He literally had no idea like he'd ever played the game of football before. He looked like like a Bond villain, French Moroccan, absolutely batshit crazy. Yeah, I don't know what went on. Basically, he ended up starting several games um, because of an injury to Phil Hardy. And you'll never beat Phil Hardy. That's his position. Emad comes in, never to be seen again after about a dozen games or so. But an absolute cult hero because he just was never scared about getting up the pitch. He would just run out defenders, run out defenders. But then ultimately he'd leave the space open where he's supposed to be covering wide open for the opposition to score. So a complete lunatic. Fans dubbed him the Mad Banana and he, to this day, revels in that uh, in that nickname and signs off uh, S- uh, Facebook Messenger with Mad Banana. So yeah, that's my nomination, Emad. Nice. Uh, way over time, but we'll allow, we'll allow it for the Mad Banana. Uh, yeah. I'd say well done him on owning the nickname. Um, Liam, your last up. Uh, you got 60 seconds. Three, two, one, go. So signed by Gary Mills as a direct replacement for the excellent Neil Ashton, Sean Newton arrived at the race course with a massive amount of hype. Accolades like best left back in the league and one of a left foot were thrown around with reckless abandon before we'd even seen him play. Now, during the start of his time at Wrexham, I thought he showed some promising signs. He could certainly hit a decent free kick, but much like everyone else in that bizarre second campaign under Mills, I thought his form really tapered off. We went from having one of the most dependable left-backs in the league in Ashton to a player I'd describe as cumbersome in that second season. To cap matters off, he threw a massive strop when Mills left and really rubbed salt in the wound with the abysmal final performance in our woeful defeat to Stamford in the Cup. When we beat York towards the end of that season, it wasn't just a screw you to Gary Mills, it was one to Newton as well. 
Wow, that's more controversial than mine, I would say. Crikey Moses, Sean That's Newton. what I'm going for. Oh, he's a good player. Hashtag not convinced. <laughs> wow, we've all... Gilpin. Gilpin's gone. Gilpin. Gilpin has gone. Gilpin's internet. North London. No, only is it... Well, well, what was his um, his nomination again? It seems thoroughly forgettable. That was too much. Tyler too Garrett. Tyler Garrett, yeah. We've got Garrett, Buenan, um Johnny Hunt. Johnny Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> and Sean Newton. Okay. Hmm. Emad is so, the obvious one, isn't he, I suppose? Uh, you know what? It's, it's a weird one. I can't remember much about Tyler Garrett. Um, Emad is is the ob- obvious one, but uh, yeah, it's kind of it depends if we end up doing a segment after this, which is like for the for the, the you know the best cult heroes because he would be a shoe in for that. Straight That's away. what I was thinking exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, but he was awful. But he was. But great he did. But he did produce moments, didn't he? he you know, well, he had. I mean, considering the the little amount of time he spent at the club, um, and was pretty rubbish, he still very well known and maybe it was the luxury of having a sort of French Moroccan player from nowhere come and take over from Phil Hardy I don't know but I, I can't I, I'm going to have to disagree on Johnny Hunt anybody who scores the winning penalty in an FA Trophy final will never be considered crap for, for me yes fair enough <laughs> I, as I say I was struggling to be honest uh, one thing I always remember about Bunan was I think we were playing Man United in a friendly midweek as we were want to do back in those days and he misplaced a pass or something and Darren Ferguson the crowd had fallen silent in front of about eight nine thousand people Darren Ferguson just yells FNLE man and I was just like well that just summed his time up really didn't it to be honest oh, um yeah. I, lo- I do love him though I, I did love him and I really wanted him to score that time he went on that mental run and hammered it into the bar yeah, I, mean, I just say he, he did have moments of quality, didn't he? So does that bar him from this one? Possibly. I don't think we should rule him out. Whoa. This, this, I think this left back one is really hard. It is hard. Hmm. I, I think do sure. we do, do we on that basis? Do we on that basis put our shortlisted four to the wonderful Twitterati and get them to vote, and then? You know, I don't want to. I don't want to do that because I'm going to get abuse for nominating Johnny Hunt because, as, as you mentioned, he scored the penalty <laughs> in the FA Trophy so, final. So, Tim, if you tag Reeson and you tag Johnny, <laughs> absolutely Hunt as well, into the poll. <laughs> uh, so, uh, no, no, I reckon. Well, Andy's now dropped out of the meeting because his internet's so bad. Not only is North London crime-ridden, but the uh, internet's down. It's flooding. It's like he's probably, getting, he's probably getting burgled as we speak. Uh, just apoc- yeah, absolutely apocalyptic hellscape down there. Um, do we go for Tyler Garrett because Andy's not here? I mean, he's forgettable, he, though, yeah. isn't he? He's very he's, forgettable. He's crap, but forgettable. It'd be the, it'd be oh, the easy route God. out, though, wouldn't he? Because no one wants to really put Johnny Hunt there because, no, because of the and trophy. I, and I will say, I thought, I thought, yes, Sean Newton. I, I say you weren't convinced. I can see the argument, but I think we've had far worse players. And Neil Ashton did say that he thought he was a good, a good player. Yeah. He was a big yeah. presence, wasn't he? He was a big enough guy. Mm. He was solid, solid. I can't think of anything horrific that he did. He may have been. He wasn't spectacular by no, any means. No, he may have he may have sort of drifted off in quality wise. Do we wuss out and go Garrett? Let's do that. Let's go with Garrett. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. We'll do we'll do a cult hero eleven and Emad will be 
Uh, you'll, you'll be left back there without a <laughs> doubt. Uh, okay, Tyler Garrett, welcome to Ashaiti Heroes. That's all for this week's episode of Fearless in Devotion. Who are we sponsored by again, Tim? I believe it's that ball that's rather fat. So, yeah, them them lot that are down oh, in York Street. York Street and and obviously in Mould as well, amongst that's other it. business interests which should be coming your way. But, yes, the fat ball is the sponsor of this wonderfully amateurish podcast. <laughs> Um, yes indeed thought we should mention them uh, so that uh, just in case they're listening Um, but yeah we're excited to bring you some more guests over the next few weeks Um, as always you can email us in fearlessindevotion at gmail.com or message the Twitter account if you've got anything to say Uh, but thanks very much again for downloading and bye cheers everyone yeah see you later up the oil rich reds